Let us pray. Lord Christ, you are both the mystery and the revealing. You are the thing which our souls seek. And you are the method by which we find. We pray that your people would be enlightened by the wisdom of your Holy Spirit this morning. Amen. If you were to ask the average American, what makes someone a Christian? What do you think they would say? Good news for us this morning. Uh, the answer is not something we have to speculate about because there are armies of sociologists going around asking exactly these kinds of questions. And the answer that people both outside of church and really a lot of people inside the church, the answer they give to what makes someone a Christian, like what's the bright line, is often something like being a Christian or you are a Christian if you, I don't know, if you go to church, you give money, you tithe, I guess, uh, and, and you're a good person. Even among certain people here this morning, I would imagine if your ears were attuned to Colossians chapter 3, it can seem like the wall of faith is erected by stacking moral behavior on top of religious activity. You could point right there in what we said, want to avoid the wrath, wrath of God, someone could say, well, it's right there. Avoid sexual immorality, covetousness, obscene talk, wrath, anger, all that other stuff. See, right there, there's the list. Do that and you're in. This is what I call a picket fence religion. It's the construal of Christianity on, uh, uh, as a sort of territory inside the fence where all of us good people are, where the good people are doing good things with other good people. We behave in ways that are different, we think, from the disordered lives on the other side of the fence. Well, uh, the, f the first problem with picket fence religion is that not only is it not the gospel, but it's just so boring. <laughs> I mean, do you really think that the adventure that you have been called into with the living God is walking the fence line, making sure it's there and in, in good order? I know this old boy in Mississippi named Tom Tool. His daddy is a cattle farmer, and he wanted to enlarge his holding and get, get a couple more hundred head of cattle in there. And so, of course, before he had the cattle shipped in, he marked off the fence, got another few hundred acres, marked off a fence, built it, and then the day came and he brought all brand new cattle in the trailer car after trailer car and down to a cow, every one of them would spin and, and beautiful, beautiful field of alfalfa out there. And as the cows would come off the trailer, they would all spend the first 15 minutes just really enjoying this alfalfa that was there. And then for the rest of the day and indeed the rest of the week, they would begin circling that fence, walking right around it, all the way around field of alfalfa spread out in the middle, but they would trod down the ground around the fence. The Apostle Paul 
absolutely hated religious fencing. As a matter of fact, most of the ethical thrust of his letter to the Colossians, Paul, it's as though Paul is walking around with a pair of wire cutters in his hand saying, is that crowd of mystical Jews and Phrygian ascetics telling you where you can and cannot go? Are they telling you do not handle, do not touch, do not taste? Don't listen to them. All these fences have absolutely nothing to do with the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone judge you about new moons or Sabbaths or what you should and shouldn't be eating. These fences look like real faith, but they're just the same old self-imposed ascetic practices that don't even keep the wolves out, by the way. This is Paul's argument in chapter 2 of the letter to the Colossians. It's, it's mind-blowing how radical Paul is. Chapter 2 is all about cutting the barbed wire of asceticism at every turn. Then it would seem from what we've just read in chapter 3 that he's just building back the fence two inches away from what it was, right? Like here's all these stuff that you cannot do, he says. So what gives? If that's your question this morning, I, I congratulate you. You're on to something. I think there's this little portion of Paul's letter in chapter 3 that we unfortunately overlooked in our reading this morning that I think is absolutely crucial to understand the part that we did read. Without it, without these first five verses in Colossians 3, Paul appears to be selling barbed wire and fence posts rather than what he's really doing which is pointing to the church the vastness of the territory of life in God. Listen to what he says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not things of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you too will appear with Him in glory. You see, you see the difference there? You see what a difference that makes? Yes, Paul certainly believes that there are moral implications to faith in Jesus Christ but only after he first describes the mystery of faith itself. Your life, he says, your life is hidden with God in Christ. There is something about you that is a mystery. You can't always see it, but within every one of you who know Jesus, there is something about you that's not merely human. There is something inside each one of you that contains the very being and person of God. Now, we have to be careful here. Christian doctrine is... Uh, different than the kind of philosophies and, and thought systems that would say, uh, there's a little spark of the divine in every single human being, and, and to find it, you just have to look within. It's there. No, for Paul, 
this is a very conditional reality. Paul says that the presence of Christ is within you insofar as you have died with Christ and been raised with Christ. The image here evokes the way that both ancient Jews in the time of Paul and Jesus and early Christian communities did baptism. Those who were to be baptized would go into a dark room, women with the women and the men with the men, they would be naked. And many times they would go down into a double-sided pool. They would go down into the pool and be baptized. And then they would come up on the other side of the pool. You see it? They go down and they come up. And so it is that Paul says earlier in chapter 2, verse 12, you in your baptism have been buried with him. And so you will also be raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. You see that? You see how conditional it is? Insofar as you've gone down, will you be raised up? You'll be raised with him only by descending into his death. In other words, we might say that by putting Christ at the center of your Wanting your desires, the way you think, if you do that, it will feel kind of like a death. And if you're doing it right, it's going to feel like a loss. But given that it is Christ who is the center of your life, all the other ways of securing joy and satisfaction are essentially dead to you. The life that you're living now, you're living to God with Christ, even though that reality is hidden to you. I, I, just, I just love this phrase. I can't get enough of the mystery that is inside it. Your life, your life, your life is hidden with God in Christ. I love it because it's so hopeful at the same time that it's really honest, right? I mean, if we're, if we're being honest, most of us, most of the time, don't feel that the life of Christ is like flowing out of us, right? There are lots of things that we do that are opaque to us. There are ways that we want to honor our Lord and we wish that it would come out of us and sometimes we can't see it. But yet it is hopeful because it's saying that what's important about you and you and you is not just you. There is something else that is operating inside of you that will be revealed. When Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. What matters is not what our lives look like from the outside. What matters is the hidden reality of Jesus Christ in us that one day will become plainly visible when Christ becomes the all in all. Have you all ever uh, been digging around in a garden in the early springtime and you come upon an acorn that has that little green tender shoot that's kind of poking, curling out the side of it? 
Have you ever seen that? Just as it begins to unfold upward into the crust of the earth. That little tender shoot that had until a couple of days before been contained in the shell of the acorn is now becoming visible. And had you not uncovered it from the ground, it would have remained hidden for, I don't know, another week or two. But no matter, because now it is stretching upward into a new kind of life. You have been buried. You've been buried with Christ in your baptism. You've gone down into the water. You have said no to self and yes to Jesus. Unlike all the acorns that dropped on top of the ground and dried out in the sun, your true life, your true self, has, been, has to be buried into the ground before it will emerge anew. And it will come forth in glory. And when it does, it will have certain characteristics. God's life is hidden in you, but there will come a day and there will come little fits and starts in your life where what is hidden in you, the life of Christ, will, it'll come out. And when it comes out, what does it look like? Well, now we get into the rest of what we read. There are two things, two basic modes that the life of Christ will be revealed in. First, if you've been buried in the fertile soil of God's life, the fruit that your life bears will be moral, ethical. If Christ comes into your heart, He is going to come out in your behavior. I love uh, one, one Jewish professor at Duke said, uh, religion's not very interesting until the moment when it begins to tell you what to do with your pots and pans and genitals. <laughs> if Christ is in you, guess what, folks? It'll make a difference in the way you cook, or at the very least, who you cook for and when and why. It will affect who you take your clothes off in front of. It just will. There will be things that you can't do and shouldn't do that are correlated to the life-giving freedom of the gospel. There are moral standards. Irreducible moral standards. Now, some of you are saying to yourself, but now wait a second, Deacon Joe. You were talking about that fence and how boring it is and how much Paul doesn't like it. I'm so glad you asked the question, and I've anticipated your question. I knew you'd ask. You know, uh, in, in places that don't have a tremendous amount of land, places like North Mississippi where Tom Toole lives, cows require fences. But that's not true everywhere. I know a lovely little valley just north of Hamilton, Montana, with the Bitterroot Mountains in the distance, and there is so much land in that place that the cows are what we call free range. There aren't fences for these cows. Cows themselves know, though, that free range doesn't mean no range. 
There are limits. Now, to stick with my admittedly slightly overworked metaphor here, it's as though Paul is saying, now that you have met Christ, you know where your life is. In other words, you can see now that what you thought brought life actually brings death. There are certain behaviors that you will need to kill off or they will kill you. If you pursue your own desires first and foremost, and that's what Paul means, by the way, when he says you know, that strange phrase, covetousness, which is idolatry. He doesn't mean just wanting your neighbor's Tesla. Covetousness is all of the kind of desires that we have where we say, oh, the grass is greener right over there. If I, if I pursue that thing and put my heart on that thing, oh, that's going to be some good eating alfalfa. If I go through this valley, the, 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 the valley of career success, oh, I'm bound to find it right over there. You can go over there. You can. You're free to do that. But eventually, you're going to find that what you thought was beauty and goodness and truth is anything but. I mean, the wrath of God is just the name we give to a country that we went far out in pursuit of and found it to be hell and not heaven. You are not Mississippi cows. You are Montana cows. You have been carted from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's blessed Son. And you are free in that. But just don't use your freedom to pursue things that will kill you. Don't go over the next hill to find grass that you think will satisfy. Don't dirty the water with the unclean manure of your sexual practices and then try to drink out of it. It's not good for you. God wants the things for you that bring life. So first of all, when the hidden life of Christ in us appears, it, it, it will bear certain moral fruit. There will be an ethical sort of sketch that we can say, well, I mean, it's all the stuff we know is good, right? When Christ's life in you appears, it'll be a moral life. Secondly, when the life of Christ is revealed in you, it will be irreducibly intellectual. You weren't expecting that one, were you? But isn't that what Paul says? If you have been raised with Christ, set your mind. As my daddy used to say, put your mind on it, son. Set your mind on the things that are above and not the things that are of earth. In other words, given the reality of Christ has captured your attention, now fix your attention upon him. What's next for you to do is an act of intellectual commitment. Christian faith isn't just a feeling. It's a pattern of thinking that elsewhere Paul calls the mind of Christ. It's a thinking endeavor. What Paul means here in Colossians 3 is something like, set your mind on the presence of Christ in all things. 
It doesn't mean that you uh, should be thinking about churchy stuff or merely peppering your speech with pious phrases. Although that could seem to be what it means when he says, set your mind on heavenly things and not on earthly things. We need to talk about this for a second. You know, in one of his letters, the apostle Peter said, there are lots of things in the letters of our brother Paul that are very hard to understand. This is one of them. Uh, Biblical scholars like Craig Keener actually says, say that Paul is using this language ironically, uh, that it was his opponents who said, oh, you need to be up there in the heavenly reality through all these ascetic disciplines and practices and doing this and not doing that. And so Paul is sort of thwarting that by saying, oh, you want to be heavenly? Be moral. So he uses this language of set your mind on things that are in heaven where Christ is at the right hand of God. Now let me ask you a question. Where is heaven? Where is the right hand of God? We often picture as though God's sitting up on this big, totally sweet throne, kind of like Abraham Lincoln. And there are like laser beams of angelic glory going out from him. And Jesus is sitting right there next to him. But that's absurd, of course. On the other hand, we know that God doesn't have a body, right? Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 4, uh, God is spirit, and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. Isaiah says numerous times, the God of Israel is not like the gods of the nations around. Is his arm short that he cannot save? Is there any place that you can go where the goodness of God cannot reach you? No. If you go to heaven, he's there. If you go to the depths of the earth, he's there too. No, when Paul uses, or any any biblical writer uses the language of the right hand of God, it's sort of like what we use when we say, uh, man, you're my right hand man. We don't literally mean you're over here versus being over here. It's not that heaven is someplace where God is, Christ is, and because he's up there, that means that he can't also be down here, right? That would be silly. The other day, I'm working in the garden with my son, and uh, I was working hard, and he was so into what I was doing, so committed to the task at hand, that he would run into the shop and grab a a tool or a certain kind of shovel that I needed and bring it out to me even before I asked him to do it. And what would I say? Oh, man, you're my right-hand man, right? The right hand of God is the place where God's will and activity are extended through the life and commitment of another. At God's right hand means that Jesus has all of the authority and the power of the Father through the Holy Spirit. He is at God's right hand means He's right here right now. Ascending to the heavens doesn't mean that Jesus and His power and His presence are like over there and not here because even Ephesians 4.10 says, he who descended is also he who ascended far above the heavens. Why? So he could stay up there and hang out? No, so that he might fill all things. So that he can fill your life. So that he can fill your work. 
so that He can fill your relationships with your children, so that He can fill your mind with an imagination for what dirt is, so that you can see even the dirt beneath your feet as the very splendor of God Himself through all of creation. Jesus has the fullness and the power of God at His disposal. So if Christ has descended even to the depths of hell and ascended to fill all things, our work then becomes a kind of intellectual discernment of the presence and possibility of Christ in all of these things, right? And of course, there are some things and people and systems and principalities and powers where Christ is not operative, where God's will is not being done. And so it becomes incumbent upon us to do the hard work of saying, is Christ here? Is is that glorifying to God? Is this good? To set our minds like folks do not believe the garbage in the world that tells you, man, just turn it on and let it play. Cover your ears with the sounds that are just sort of always floating around. No, tune in. Tune in to what is of Christ. Tune into it. What, 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 is that? what are those things? What will they look like? Elsewhere, Paul, again, gives us a list. It's not exhaustive. These are not laws. But elsewhere, he says... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on it. Let it, let it fill your attention. Think on it. Now, friends, I want to ask you, and I I don't mean to be sharp about this. Does lovely and commendable and excellent and good, does that describe the things that you happen to be thinking on in the course of an average day? I want you to think about that. How about the show you streamed last night? Was the vision of human love actually lovely? I mean, folks, you just, just do a little survey of your own watching and tell me how many of the shows you watch show a marriage that is absolutely destructive and an affair that's like super interesting, right? So, oh, whoa, I kind of, and, and you find your affections going toward, oh, she really loves him. He ought to leave his wife. And just ask yourself, would I actually want to be in that extramarital affair? My wife and I paused it one time. We were watching that show, The Mayor of Easttown. This guy's cheated on his wife. His wife knows. The whole town knows. He's ruined his marriage. And not only that, but his 11-year-old son knows. And the wife says, get out of the house. And he's, he's walking out, and he's, you know, head tucked between his tail. And he says, oh, buddy, I... I'm going to fix this, okay? Okay, buddy. And my wife pressed pause and says, nobody ever thinks about that when they're stepping out behind the no-tell motel. 
Nobody thinks about the moment when what they have been doing has been shown to be death to them. It's death. Are you, are you looking, are you filling your mind with things that are just full of death? Or are you filling them with things that are good and lovely and commendable? Now, I don't mean to suggest by this that there are certain things that Christians should and shouldn't look at. Maybe there are, but that's a matter for your discernment. I know one Christian friend who, who watched uh, a comedy special with a pretty foul mouth uh, comedian because he said, I know my son's going to watch this. And I know all the kids in school are talking about it, so I wanted us to watch it together and discern what about it was true and what was not true. That's all I'm suggesting, that you can see Christ or not Christ in the things that you fill your mind with. The other night, Ian Burks was over at the house, and as he was leaving, he just asked a simple question that's all I'm trying to get at. He said, you got anything good to read? Friends, you should be asking, you got anything good to read? Good? Good? Now, of course, Christians aren't only focused on things like books and movies and music. Those are all a sort of a, a training ground, a foretaste for the work of discerning the presence of Christ in other people. Right? I mean, comedy shows are one thing, but people is a whole different thing. A bit later, Paul says, your new self is being renewed after the image of its creator. You see, for Paul and biblical writers, every human being is made in the image of God. That's what we're intended for. That's our goal, our aim as persons. But that image has been defaced like a mosaic that someone smashed. And when Christ comes into our life, He is the master mosaicist, and He can put that back together. He can renew it into something that is even more beautiful than what was there before. And this kind of knowledge, this kind of discernment of knowing Christ is less like a math problem and more like the work of interpretation of discerning the presence of Christ in all who are around us, discerning the ways that they could be renewed in the image of Christ. And when this happens in your life and in your life and in your life, and we come together as a church, Paul says, Christ is then all in all. Christ is in all of y'all. Christ is in you. He's in us. And there's no longer these kinds of ethnic and class differences that people use to lord it over one another. Now, the differences don't go away. If you're a white dude, you stay a white dude. Clearly, right? That's not what he means. But he just means that in all of us, that is not determinative for who you are because your life is hidden with God in Christ. We're free to see the uniqueness in other people because there is an underlining and overarching unity in Christ. It makes me think of those lovely lines from Hopkins when he says, Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, 
through the image of men's faces. For the time being, we all act and think and live from places that are mysterious to us at times. But one day, we hold out hope that Christ will raise us up with him and that our lives will be united to his in the radiance of his glory. Amen.